we need to stop diagnosing people because we're worse than placebo. Whoa. That's what that means. That means we're, you know, we're, it's terrible. 78% That is stunning. It it really (laughs) makes me wonder whether, yeah, exactly, whether we should be diagnosing anyone at all. I mean, with that sort of failure rate, you might as well just be pulling diagnoses from a hat. I I, probably would do better that way. The future of mental health treatment and peak performance enhancement is here. Welcome to the WebDelix podcast, brought to you by WebDelix, your trusted resource for plant medicine information on the web. By sharing real stories, expert interviews, and honest conversations, we're here to go beyond the myths and get to the truth. Here's your host, Scott Mason. The WebDelix podcast exists to educate illuminate, and inform. It does not provide medical advice or recommendations as to any course of treatment, mental health or otherwise. You should always consult with a physician or other licensed healthcare professional, mental health or otherwise, before pursuing any personal growth program or course of treatment. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the WebDelix podcast, where we're on a journey to find out the truth about psychedelics and plant medicine, get rid of the myths, and change the narrative. I'm your host, Scott Mason, and with us today is our very special guest, Katie Walker, who's going to talk to us about a topic that might seem like it's a little bit controversial, but this is a conversation that is well worth having. Katie, welcome to the show, and tell us a little bit about yourself. Hi, Scott. Thanks for being or having me here on WebDelix. I'm very excited to be here, and I'm very excited about what we're talking about today because I love speaking about real issues, mm. and I'm learning that you know in society we deviate from those real issues sometimes, and unfortunately, the issue we're talking about today, if we don't talk about these issues in real time, we can't support each other the way that we need to be supported, and we're losing, you know, our children, our friends, our adolescents, our community members, um, because we we're still working on how do we effectively speak about these, you know, really big issues. So, um, a little bit about me: uh, I've been a nurse for about twenty years. I created a company called Revitalist. We do ketamine infusions and such. Um, I have two advanced degrees: one in anesthesia, one in psychiatry. Uh, kids that we treat at the clinic uh, have been as young as 12 years of age uh, with ketamine infusions. They do amazing. And, um, you know, I've really been able to see not only the mental health changes with these children, but then also um, me, myself, I lost my brother when I was 14. He was 17. He died from a traumatic uh, motocross accident. So I got to kind of live that as a freshman in high school um, and, and seeing kind of the evolution, what, what was supported, what wasn't supported, what was said, what was not said. So it really gave me a lot of insight to not only the adolescent population, but the adult population on how they handle adolescents. So I think that's, you know, a very unfortunate situation that happened to me, but it helped me to evolve into a manner to where I like to sit with children. I like to sit with adolescents and to hear them out. Right. Because a lot of times they're seeking guidance mm-hmm. and advice from us. Um, and we're not always the best at giving that. Uh, so that's something that, you know, I think this conversation we're having today is is necessary because we need to see that we're not leading our children the way that they need to be led right now. And unfortunately, that's causing them to feel isolated, sometimes betrayed, uh, sometimes mm-hmm. like they have to guide themselves. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, and it's leading to you know, suicides. So um, I'm happy to be here and ready to speak about these real topics. What a great way to introduce yourself. And that last sentence that you said, you're ready to talk about real topics. I'm a firm believer in keeping it real here on WebDelix, because otherwise there's no reason that people would have to trust us. And we believe in being trustworthy. So your introduction set up the theme for what we're talking about today, which is psychedelics and the pain of adolescence. And on the uh, theme generally of keeping it real, hey, I've always been honest on this show about my own life. And I think it's important to share this sort of stuff because otherwise people might think that we're just talking 
abstractly or from a mountaintop about problems that folks are facing. And these issues, uh, especially the ones that we're talking about today, are relatable to everyone. People don't talk about them enough, and they're things I feel personally very strongly about. As I've mentioned earlier on this show, the home situation that I had as a child and as an adolescent was chaotic. And not only that, being honest, I was a skinny, bookish boy who was geeky, shy, and got beat up a lot. And not only that, I was generally kind of weird. The things that I liked were things that most people didn't like. And the things that all the other boys loved, I, I wasn't that into. And so the combination of all of those things had me very, very depressed. It really started to hit when I was in junior high, and it pretty much went through all of high school. I went to a therapist, and what was his solution? Here, take a pill. And I took pills through most of my adolescence, allegedly to alleviate the depression. Katie, I don't know whether they even helped that much. I do know what did help. What helped was when I moved out of my house and when I got out of my hometown and went to college and was suddenly around people that could see and accept me for who and what I was. So that says to me the problem really wasn't medical, but it was treated like it was a medical issue and with just this solution of giving me a pill. Is that the way things still are? Because if that's the case, Katie, I've got a problem with that. What is the landscape for treating adolescent mental health issues today like? It is, unfortunately, Scott. It, I mean, that's very common that people start them on medications, right? Sometimes we don't have the time, I guess, as providers to really mm -hmm. sit down and hear, or maybe we don't have the assessment skills. I, I'm not sure. I just know that there's a huge deficit in the mental health and the medical arena. And the, the easy fix for prescribers is to turn to a pill, right? And they can give you antidepressant. Unfortunately, we're giving these kids, you know, benzodiazepines at little tiny ages of like four years old and five years old. So not only antidepressants, but we're giving them benzos, we're giving them stimulants like Ritalin. We're trying to manage these symptoms um, instead of actually looking at the root cause. And that's the beautiful thing with ketamine psychedelics is it helps us to see the root cause. Because if we can see the root cause, we can actually solve the situation. You know, it's kind of like you're stove is on fire in the house. So therefore, we're just going to keep pouring water mm. on the fire instead of just just turn the stove off. Right. I mean, so it's like just fix the root cause. So um, one thing that I've noticed, like the kids that we see a lot of times, they'll come in, they'll be 12, 14, 16 years old, and they've tried 18 different medications by that time. You know, wow. so I think that if we can step back, and I love what you said at the beginning of the show, you were talking about changing the narrative, yeah. right? So right now in society, we're telling people they're sick. We're telling them that they have a, a, a chemical imbalance. My personal opinion, I don't necessarily believe that chemical imbalances are the primary aspect as to why people feel different. A common example would be, hey, Scott wants to be an NFL player. He's, he's never played football, but he's going to play in the NFL. He's 38 years old. And he's going to play in the NFL. So what would we do in the mental health space right now? We'd be like, all right, Scott, you're going to be 38 years old. You're going to go play in the NFL. I'm going to put you on testosterone and then just go sign up, okay? I just need you to go sign up because we're going to fix your testosterone level to get you there. But we're not working on any skills. We're not working on any type of coping mechanisms. We're just expecting that people know how to live. The whole system, Scott, has not been developed at all. So unfortunately, when our kids are starting to hit, when you started hitting symptoms of depression when you were a teenager, instead of having someone sit there and try to hear the environment, maybe hear the positives, the negatives, like what conflict is there? How is it negatively interacting? And not looking at you as like, oh, it's not your environment. It's you, Scott. Here's a drug. Mm -hmm. Instead, if we could have sat there with you at that time of transition because something was wrong. That's why you started having symptoms of depression. You probably had coexisting symptoms of anxiety, yeah. especially with bullied and you feel isolated from the groups and such, right? So if we could have identified that at those times, and taught you coping mechanisms to help you to effectively transition to the next level of as we evolve in life, then maybe you would have never needed any type of antidepressants. But we don't take the time to hear that person. We take the time to figure out what we want to diagnose you with. 
So the whole system is broken, you know, and it's like I found a statistic the other day that 78% of people in the mental health space are misdiagnosed. Do you know what that means, Scott? That means we need to stop diagnosing people because we're worse than placebo. Whoa. That's what that means. That means we're, you know, we're, it's terrible. 78% That is stunning. I, I, I mean, it really <laughs> makes me wonder whether, yeah, exactly, whether we should be diagnosing anyone at all. I mean, with that sort of failure rate, you might as well just be exactly. just pulling diagnoses from a hat. I, I probably would do better right. that way. <laughs> People are like, well, they cross over. The symptoms cross over. And I'm like, guys, this is embarrassing, right? So one of my degrees is in anesthesia. So it's like 99.9% that we're affected. Yeah. Okay, well, then if we're 78% wrong in psychiatry, <laughs> like, we just need to close all the textbooks and we need to start over. And that's one thing I've noticed with the children, you know, with adolescents. One, most adults are scared to death to talk to adolescents, mm. especially providers. Why? Um I don't know, Scott. I really don't know. I mean, I was trained with the anesthesia world. I was trained to do pediatric anesthesia mm. as well. So I've always been comfortable with kids. But it's like, did, did we forget that we were once a child ourselves? We've all lived that path, you know, and it's like, why can't we go and sit down? And then the other thing that, you know, is highly frustrating to me is when adults look at kids and they go, something's wrong with you. What's wrong? What's wrong with you? So as an adult, I'm asking a child who doesn't know half the experience of life that we know yet, I'm asking them what's wrong with them. And when I'm putting it in their shoes. So therefore, like, I'm attacking them, I guess, to a point. But like, as an adult, we're supposed to be their mentors. Mm. We're supposed to sit with them and walk with them. And, and we're not doing that very effectively. Well, one thing, though, that comes to mind when you talk about ketamine in particular going right to the root causes is that I felt cynically, and I bet everything I've ever thought of in my life, someone else has thought of first. And I not, in addition to betting that, I bet that a lot of other kids that were in therapy or have been getting antidepressants or anti-anxiety drugs or any other sorts of diagnoses during their childhood or adolescence. I bet a lot of them thought has been, well, you know, the people who are in control of my life are the ones making me depressed. If I sure. have, for instance, a parent with an addiction issue, or if I have a parent who is abusive, or if I have a parent with a personality disorder, or any of the other host of things that might cause the home environment or the personality development of a child to become problematic, those adults are at the same time in control of their care. And so even if there was a larger systemic way of dealing with adolescent trauma that might involve more widespread use of something like ketamine, if ketamine were to actually enable a child to see the root of their problem and the provider, and that root were to point to the parent who is in one way or another paying for the care of that child, is it realistic to say that anything would change for that child? It might even get worse. No, I love it. No, that's a great view there. Yeah. So we have had parents bring their children in and say, something's wrong with my child. So, you know, when we do consults with those kids, like we're looking at the kid, right? Period. It's the kid. The kid is who I become the advocate for that child. So I'm sitting there and it's happened before to where there's nothing wrong with the child. It's the parent bringing in the child and says something's wrong with them. And it's usually because there's such discourse between that relationship, mm. right? So, you know, so we've said, you know, your kid is doing okay. In the, and, and like, I'll take the kids to the side sometimes and I'll say, hey, can I talk to them kind of one-on-one? -on -one? And I'll ask them, I'm like, do you want to be here? And, you know, and they're like, no, like, I, and I find like some core issues. And sometimes it's that conflict, you know, to child and parent relationship. Other times though, uh, when parents bring in their kids, they can be extremely supportive mm -hmm. of these kids. And I'll tell them, I'll say, you know, with the kid, I'm like, I want you to leave this rodeo. I'm here to help you and to support you in any capacity. What you want me to tell your parent, I will. What you don't want me to tell your parent, I won't. Unless, you know, it, it causes some type of threat, a, a definitive threat or injury to that child. But what I tell the parents a lot of times is like, let us use, utilize the ketamine so we can kind of see the communication 
aspects with the child. And then if we can see the communication style and aspects with the child, then a lot of times it's the communication we can work on with the parent as well. So it's it's definitely a unit mm. piece there if you have two bodies, mm-hmm. you know, that are that want to participate. Um, but you know, the kids, Scott, one thing I've noticed with kids, especially with this from the suicide perspective, is when our kids aren't sleeping at night, they have a higher risk of killing themselves when they're not sleeping at night. Really? Yeah. And that's a question that we're not asking kids, you know, necessarily. Like a lot of parents will say, Oh yeah, my kid doesn't go to sleep. And you know, I mean, when I was growing up, I'd stay up till two or three or whatever of else. <laughs> exactly, right? It was a competition to see how late you could stay up. But now it seems that I, I personally feel um, that we're filling these kids' heads full of so much data. Um, if it's iPads or TV or YouTube or whatever else or, you know, FaceTime, all this data. And I know people will say social media. And I understand social media can be negative. But I think it's a lot of data that we're giving these children and we're putting them in sports and we're getting them to do all these grades and all these other things. And it, they're processing at speeds that their little brains mm. aren't able to effectively process yet. So literally, they don't know. It's like, just drop it. Like, they can't. Um, so therefore, at nighttime, it's like when they start processing, when they're mm. trying to go to sleep, and it's almost like their guard's down and they don't know how to turn their brain off. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we're not teaching our children how to meditate how to do yoga, how to do breath works. We're not teaching them any of those skill sets. We're pushing them and pushing them and pushing them yeah. constantly until they're they're literally breaking. Yeah. Um, so with our kids, you know, when I've told the parents, when they're struggling with anxiety and depression and your child comes to you and says, mom or dad, I can't sleep. I'm like, that's when you need to get them help um, because that's when they start becoming reactive. And my personal opinion, suicidality with children, it's it's not related to depression. I think it's more so related to an ineffective coping tool to where they just want it be, to be over. And that's the oh. way, that's the only way they know to escape right. the situation right. um, because we're not teaching them other skill sets right now. Wow. Uh, so after hearing all of this, and we're going to dive into some other questions that what you've just said raises in a minute, but imagine that I am a parent who has been told by their child, that the child can't sleep, and that they have been having fantasies about ending it all. And I am frightened. And I am considering, because I've listened to the Webdelics podcast and am hearing you, the possibility, at least, of ketamine as a treatment. Now, as such a parent, I might have real reservations about that. But Perhaps I could make a more informed decision if I understood exactly what ketamine therapy looks like, what the process is, what the child experiences, uh, so that I'm not behaving in a reactive way myself. Could you maybe go into a little bit more detail about that? Yeah, and I think the first thing, Scott, is accepting that being reactive and a parent in that situation is completely normal. You know, because it's a situation, it's scary, yeah. right? So yeah, so we offer consultations, um, sixty minute consultations with with the ketamine piece, and and that gives the parent and the child, you know, um, room to hear the way it works and different things like that. So, my personal opinion um, with our brains is that when our brains hit conflict, they go to polarities. So if you think about like Newton's laws of physics, mm-hmm. to every action, there's equal and opposite reaction. If you think about energy, energy is never created nor destroyed, mm. right? So if we hit conflict in our brain and we go to these polarities, everyone's excited about using the diagnosis lately of bipolar, mm. right? So everybody believes in bipolar. What does bipolar mean, right? Two polar ends. Mm. But when they have that um, with these with the kids and then with the ketamine piece, it's almost like these children, they start living in a constant state of anxiety and depression. And to me, anxiety and depression are complete opposites to each other. Um, you know, I'll tell people it's like Mount Everest and and, and Death Valley. Huh. Um, so when they're living in these, you know, conflicted polarities all the time, they they forget how to find peace mm-hmm. um, and actually how to integrate what's causing anxiety and depression um, symptoms. So what ketamine does is ketamine will actually put the brain, um, one, it, it um, simulates new pathways of the brain and different things like that with the traditional sciences that we're seeing. But what it does is it puts the brain into a neutral space 
into a meditative space. So when it's in that meditative space, I, I picture it being the brain's completely neutral in the middle. So when it's completely neutral in the middle, it's able to see both sides. So both polarities. Mm. So a child and adults, when they receive ketamine, it's a third party view. It's like they're sitting back and they can be like, we can ask them like, okay, let's talk about your anxiety. They don't feel anxious at that time. But when you say the term anxiety, a memory may come up um, that makes them anxious. And it's like, okay, well, let's talk about that memory. So the child doesn't feel attached to depression and anxiety at that time, even though they feel related to it. But they're viewing it from a third-party perspective. So it's almost like, Scott, like you tell me about your depression and then me sitting there with you and be like, okay, well, let's talk it through. But you're, they're able to do this with ketamine with themselves. Mm-hmm. So you're not having this reactive child saying, I'm anxious or I'm depressed or I'm suicidal or I'm going to go cut myself. You're not having that reactivity there. There's a little bit of a distance from the person to the situations that may cause them to be reactive. And when you have that distance, you're able to have such a beautiful conversation with these children at that time because their barriers are down Mm -hmm. and they're able to talk to you about it. So a lot of times with the kids, when they come in, first thing I'll say, are you sleeping? And usually it's no. Second thing I'll say is, okay, here's the deal. Your software is like grade 4.0. Your hardware is still at grade 1.0. Hmm. So what ketamine does is every time we can disconnect you from those feelings with your software, it's allowing us to upgrade your hardware each time. So the goal is that we get your hardware and we get your software to be on the same level. They typically will hear me when I say that um, because it's, it's almost like, their brains are functioning at such high levels and they don't know what to do with themselves. Mm. And, I, and I think that's a lot of times, Scott, what causes um, uh, drug use when we're teenagers. You know, when you start using drugs, um, your emotions, you cannot develop normal emotions at the same time that you're using drugs. So therefore, we're calming that overreactive system down. But as providers, if you go into someone, if, as a teenager, if you go in, and you're overproducing, what are they going to say? They're going to say, well, you probably have ADD, ADHD, and the reason you can't control it um, is because, you know, all these different things, right? And there's something wrong with you. Um, But the neat thing about ketamine is ketamine helps. It just helps the disconnect to realign. And these kids, I'm like, listen, as adults, we may try to give you good advice. A lot of times we're wrong. So what we want to do is we want to give you ketamine so we can Mm. see what your awesome brain's doing. Mm. And if we can see what your awesome brain's doing, then we can walk with you to help you to understand your brain because your brain's amazing. There's nothing wrong with it. It's just producing at a higher rate of speed or emotions than what we want it to right now. And you just don't know what to do with it. So we're going to help you to develop those coping mechanisms. Really beautiful description. Now, before we get to some of the side issues that everything that you just shared raised with me, I want to make sure that for the curious parent who might still be grasping to get a sense as to what a ketamine experience might look like for their child, they have clarity. This sort of treatment, as I'm gathering, would not involve going into some Amazonian jungle and having a shaman and having this whole sort of experience one might associate with substances like ayahuasca or or other psychedelics. It happens in a clinical setting, at least as you're discussing it, correct? That's correct. Yes. So as I'm discussing it, you're right. There's a whole different view um, of different pieces. But yes, as we do this, right? So um, the ketamine infusion. So IV. We do an IV on kids, and then you know, and it sounds anytime there's, every time there's an IV, people it scares them. But the reason we do IVs um, is because it's so well controlled. Mm. So the neat thing with ketamine, it's it's a slow onset. And then if people start having positive, negative symptoms, whatever else, if we need to increase the dose, we can. If we need to decrease the dose, we can. If we need to stop it, we can. So it's not like you're consuming it orally and you're like, well, good luck. We'll see you later on. It's very well controlled. So if we stop it, people are going to start feeling it come down in like 15, 20 seconds. So it's slow on, super quick off. Mm. Um, And then the infusions are around 40 minutes. So what we typically do is we'll have the kids come in do a 40-minute infusion. They actually sit with a therapist. Um, They can do the therapist either virtually or in the room with them. And they have like, um, you know, a session to where they're on ketamine 
with that therapist and they're able to like the therapist will say it's like six months worth of effective therapy in one session. Oh, my gosh. So we're able to move back quickly with these wow. kids who, you know, if you what right now, put them on antidepressant, you know, let's see what happens in 30, 60, 90 days. And then you just see you're losing your kid. We're losing our children during these times because they've now been put into the illness category. Mm. And if anything, they're typically above average as to what I see. Mm. They just don't know what to do with mm. themselves yet. Mm-hmm. You know, so if there's a way that we can empower these children and say, your brain's amazing, um, then, you know, I think that's the way that we can, you know, really um, change all society. So with the IVPs, like we do local, I do um, medication uh, numbing medicine prior to putting the IV in. So kids who are like scared to death, yeah, yeah. they don't feel that stuff, right? And then ketamine overall, We've been using ketamine for over 50 years on kids. We use it in the OR all the time. Uh, we use it to do lab draws. There's, we use it in dentistry. A lot of different areas. Well, and that goes as to something that, again, as a naive parent, I might have been very concerned about. Am I subjecting my child to something that's new and untested and radical and out there? And some parents may be okay with that, but knowing that it's been around and used in a host of settings for that long may provide comfort to an additional set of parents. One other question I have to ask about the experience, is the child literally seeing visions or having or hearing things in the way that they might have in different types of psychedelic experiences that are not ketamine? Or is it more of, as I'm understanding it, them almost being in a meditative state? That's a great question. And this is something that people need to understand, actually, with all the psychedelics, um, because we we like to put the terms psychedelic, hallucinogenic, and disassociative together. Mm. And they're all very different, right? So a psychedelic is just, you know, a mind altering, Mm -hmm. right? So it just alters your mind. Ketamine does offer that. It's a disassociative anesthetic by trade. So disassociative, if you think about what does disassociative mean, um, the way that I group that terminology, especially in this, is with every situation that we go through in life, we have an emotion connected to it. So subjectively and objectively, we're intertwined. But what ketamine does is it takes that intertwinement and it disconnects it to where you have the emotion sitting next to the environment. So that's the disassociative Mm -hmm. aspect, which is what ketamine does. Ketamine can turn into an hallucinogenic if it's given at a dose that's like greater than a milligram per kilo. Uh, it can turn into an hallucinogenic, yes. So it can do all three depending on dose. So what we do, though, is we give the recommended dose, but then we also look at the child's disassociation. So when I was telling you earlier, it puts you in that meditative state. There's basically three questions I ask these children. Do you feel heavy? Mm. And they'll be like, oh, gosh, my feet feel like rocks. And I'm like, okay. Do you feel light? And they'll be like, yep, my hands feel like marshmallows. So they can feel at the same time heavy and light. That's how you know they're neutral. And then the other two questions I ask them is, you know, does time feel like it's slowed down? Yes. Does time feel like it's sped up? Yes. So they feel like they can see both ends of time at the same time. And then the other question I ask is, um, do you have a special sense of clarity? And then do you also feel foggy? So what happens, Scott, you know, when these kids, if you look at teenagers, they're a ball full of everything, right? I mean, life's changing. It's exciting. Uh, hormones. Yes. There's <laughs> girls, you know, boys, like, you know, they're maturing, um, you know, so there's just a lot going on. So th- they can always identify these different things. But the neat thing with ketamine is when they're in the middle of this, if you say, okay, Scott, if you worked on ketamine, I said, hey, Scott, why do you feel bad? You'd be like, I don't know. I mean, life feels heavy. Like when we're really struggling, we always can't identify it, um, but it feels heavy. It feels pressured. I don't even know where to start. I don't even want to get out of bed mm-hmm. sometimes. Um, but with ketamine specifically, if I said, hey, Scott, why do you feel bad? Like you could tell me 10 items at one time that were tangible. You'd be like, well, actually, I feel bad because when I wake up in the morning at wow. 7.05, if I don't get my coffee, then I actually start feeling anxiety. Mm. So that's that special sense of clarity. And you can feel it, Scott. Mm. You can feel the negative to those things that are causing your weight. So if we're able to identify those, that's where the therapy and the coaching comes in alignment because we're able to start making those connections and work on real issues that are causing that heaviness to be felt. Well, and one final thing, since you mentioned coaching, am I correct in assuming that any process that would involve ketamine treatments for a child would involve 
some sort of integration or equivalent afterwards? Or they wouldn't just Absolutely. have the ketamine session and <laughs> hit the disco, I, I assume, right? Again, every provider is different. Mm. Um, I'm sure there are people out there who do the ketamine infusions because it, it can induce that sense of peace and meditation mm. for the kids. Um, and sometimes that's all we're looking for is just a little breath of air. Well, I can relate to that. But, yes, I'm all about longevity and expanding and growing and quality, right? So I always try to get them to either do therapy, process it, coaching. Let's try to figure out the next steps or the integration, which is, okay, what just happened? Right. Yeah. So the more we can do that, the more that we can build their emotional intelligence um, from a young age. And if you look at the data on emotional intelligence, the higher our emotional intelligence, the lower our uh, risks of suicide and mm -hmm. homicide. Now, there are going to be some parents or other folks who listen to or watch this episode and say, OK, that Katie... <laughs> She makes a great case for using ketamine to help with childhood trauma or some of these issues that young people are facing. But they started off the episode by griping about medicating kids only to then discuss about how kids could be medicated to solve their problems. <laughs> so how does that conundrum resolve itself, Katie? Seriously, I can't be the only person that thinks this. <laughs> no, it's great. So yes, absolutely amazing point. So right now, Scott, with medications, so, I, you know, most people don't know that you're not supposed to be on antidepressants greater than 90 days. What? The studies don't support you're that. Kidding. So that people have been on for 32 years. Yes. Um, yeah, they should have been stopped a few years ago. Um, so here's the beautiful wow. thing about ketamine <sighs> is um, ketamine, there's an induction series and then there's a maintenance series. So the induction series recommendation, typically right now, the most common one is six treatments over the course of two to three weeks. And then they're done. And then they come back as they need to. So to give you just kind of a, a simplistic breakdown of the way ketamine works is unlike a lot of the antidepressants that are out there, ketamine actually has a direct effect on our receptors. Mm. So a lot of the antidepressants out there, they don't cross something called the blood-brain barrier. It's usually a secondary effect from the medication that's causing the effect that we want. Ketamine specifically crosses the blood-brain barrier, and what it does is it tricks the brain into fixing itself. Mm. So it crosses the blood-brain barrier, and ketamine will actually go block these receptors. They're called glutamate receptors, but they're NMDA receptors. So not to be confused with MDMA, mm -hmm. but NMDA. So it blocks these little guys. When these guys are blocked, for about 40 minutes, they think they have a shortage of glutamate. So the brain actually starts producing more glutamate and it starts creating a chain reaction. So ketamine goes in, blocks, in about 40 minutes, it actually detaches from those receptors. So we've got our little glutamate, our old glutamate receptors there, but now we've got new glutamate that's actually in the mix. So glutamate, it's the mother communicator of all of our neurotransmitters that nobody talks about. They don't probably talk about it because if you take it orally, it doesn't cross the blood-brain mm. barrier. So it doesn't create that effect. Mm -hmm. But ketamine, where it crosses, it, it turns on the glutamate inside the brain. So ketamine's out, right? So glutamate then stimulates something called BDNF. BDNF is called brain-derived neurotrophic factors. That creates all the new growth in our brain. So if you look at all your other antidepressants, your dopamine, your serotonins, your norepinephrine, all those guys, those guys together, they do not have the power that glutamate has. So the process that ketamine goes in and, and, and temporarily starts, it goes in, turns on light switch, gets out. Then glutamate starts the chain reaction that creates all this new growth. So if you look at the mm. brain, if you think about Scott, the way that you grew up mm -hmm. in your environment, yes. my environment, your environment, there's situations that we live in life. And our brain holds on to those different pieces and we duplicate those. That's why we have triggers. Mm -hmm. That's why we have repetitive patterns mm -hmm. and things like that because it saved us at that time. But, but we may not need that data anymore. Yeah. It may not be benefiting us yeah. anymore, but we're so connected to it. We don't know how to disconnect. Yeah. So when glutamate comes out and it's developing all these new pathways in our brain, those new pathways don't know your childhood. They know mm -hmm. you today. 
right? So you've got adult pathways, you've got baby pathways, and they're all duplicating in the mix. But the way that it differs is because ketamine, even though it's an inorganic substance, it's actually causing almost an organic reaction in the brain for the brain to actually fix itself. So it's allowing the brain to regenerate on its own. And the medications that are out there right now that we get on, they're just constantly blocking, suppressing symptoms, right? So it's not allowing the brain a chance to fix itself. We keep putting Band-Aids on it. So one of the beautiful things about ketamine is if we can start fixing, if we can see what that root cause is, we get people off their medications all the time, Scott. Antidepressants, benzodiazepines, narcotics. Um, all every, you know, gabapentin is a huge one. And I know gabapentin, everyone thinks that that one's kind of a benign medication, but there's a, there's data that came out that says that it's causing cellular apoptosis, which means that it's actually causing our cells to explode. Right. So gabapentin is a drug that everybody, they said, oh yeah, it's fine here, take this. But there's so many medications because we're seeing how amazing our brain is. So that's kind of the difference with ketamine. Ketamine, we're using it as a medical intervention in order to get people back to the root cause to say, listen, your bra- our brains have all these receptors. Our brain can regenerate. We just got to get it in the right mindset and the right environment to optimize it because it's an amazing computer system. And for us to be sitting there giving drugs to suppress this computer system that knows way more than what we do instead of learning how to work with the computer system we're seeing it's not working. So that's the difference. Yeah, we're, we're giving a medication to stimulate an organic response versus giving medications daily to suppress these children because these children don't need to be suppressed. Mm. They need to learn how to walk in their shoes that they were given. It's like learn to play with the cards that you were handed. And that's what ketamine and psychedelics allows us to do with these kids. Well, and between that last statement and a statement you made earlier about time urgency. It reminds me of something that happened in my life when I was younger that really has affected me to this day. Uh, When I was in college during my freshman year, I had a friend, and I won't give her name now, but she was a lesbian. Her family had an issue with her lesbianism. They made that issue abundantly clear. And before she was even 20 years old, I found out that she had gotten into a car in her parents' garage and shut the garage door and turned the car on and gassed herself to death. Uh, Yeah. She was such a lovely person, Katie. She meant so much to me. And when I think about like going to her memorial service, I I couldn't stop crying. I had dreams about this for months afterwards. And, and look, that was more than a day or two later, and I've never forgotten her. If for no other reason than time was of the essence. What if whatever she was battling related to her sexual orientation that that she didn't have the ability to press on any further? What if that time hadn't passed? What if she had been able to deal with that earlier before the day she decided to get in her car and shut that garage door? Things could have been so different. One group of people that I have read about over and over again, having had a particularly high suicide rate, um, are members of the LGBTQ community. And a lot of times those people don't have the supports of their families. They may not be able to really honestly talk to anyone about what they're going through. I can't help but think when I'm hearing this, Every day that an alternative isn't offered to someone is a day that someone like Judy might not be around. Yeah. No, and you know what? Unfortunately, you know, her situation is so impactful to you. I'm sure it's so much more common than what we know. Um, You know, because if you think about it, Scott, Um, And I've not lived in these shoes, but if you think about it, right, like what education do we give our children to 
say, here's how you will be supported when you come out and you say that you're of the LGBTQ community. I don't know if we're giving them any information to do this. They're just having to bolt up and do it on their own. And then, you know, what I tell kids a lot, I actually want to tell adults too, right? With suicidality, suicidal thoughts, when you talk about changing the, the narrative with Web Delics, mm-hmm. with suicidal thoughts, suicidal thoughts happen to 70% of the population at one time during our lives. Really? Yeah. So if we want to change the narrative, we don't say, if you have suicidal thoughts, you should call 911 or go cl- go to your closest ER. Mm-hmm. And, and, and mandated that I put it in my email and mandated that I put it on the phones, right? Instead, you say, when you have suicidal thoughts. Mm-hmm. Here are some coping mechanisms. Here are some, mm-hmm. here's a safety plan that you can do because we're going to expect that at some time you may have one and it's going to be okay. There's nothing wrong with you, right? So when I talk to some therapists about suicidality and when I was talking about earlier, right, to when our brain hits conflict, it goes to polarities that have like, you know, equal and opposite um, reactions like Newton's laws. So if you, when people have suicidal thoughts, one, we make them feel horrible about it. Yeah. We make them feel like they're sick and yell yeah. all this. So, but when I talk to people about it, when they have those suicidal thoughts, you think about the polarity actions, right? When people feel completely out of control of something, their brain may match that and say, I can help you control this. Mm. So if you think about people who kill themselves, if you've been around them, usually you, you, they're like, well, they weren't, de- I, they didn't act depressed. They're usually not depressed, Scott. The suicidal piece is because there's no coping mechanisms and they just want it to stop. It's almost like they're in the middle of a storm that they want to stop and they don't know how to stop it. And the only way they can stop it is to kill themselves. But I'll tell people, I'm like, have you talked to anyone who's killed themselves? Because I'm pretty sure they didn't actually regain control. They lost all control, Mm. right? So when people have these suicidal thoughts, if they think, okay, wait a minute, I'm having suicidal thought. My brain's trying to over control a situation. Why do I feel out of control right now? And if you think about Judy's situation, Scott, where if she was, her family wasn't supportive and all this yeah. other stuff, he may have felt that she was in a situation that she had no control over. Because, I mean, I've talked to some people who have came out, you know, to say that they're gay or whatever else. And they're like, you have to like be ready to think that your family's not going to love you, yeah. that you're you're not going to have the support of your friends, you know, that you are going to re- lose relationships. They're like, it's horrible, Katie. Yeah. I mean, and that's out of your control. It's out of your control if people choose not to love you. You can't force that upon. So, you know, so if Judy at that time was one, you know, had a mentor who was like, everything's going to be okay. I'll walk with you. We'll help come up with a plan. And let's look at the pros and cons. And let's just look at the pros and cons of everything. Okay. And if this does happen, well, then we're still going to be here to support you. Right. And that's what we're missing, Scott. Mm -hmm. We're missing in society right now. Everyone deserves to be loved and to be appreciated, right? And to be accepted. Love, acceptance, and appreciation. We don't do that in society right now. Instead, we hate this side or hate this side. Or why is this side saying that? Why is this side? And I said, you know what? I'm just here to love and accept people. That's yeah. all I'm here to do. Especially when you're just a kid. Oh, my gosh. But we're judging our children. We're judging our generation, Scott. Our older generation was is saying, well, this generation is not nearly as, didn't work nearly as much as I did or whatever else. And then our younger generations are saying the older generations don't know anything. I'm like, guys, can we, can we go off the wisdom of the older generations? Because they probably did make some mistakes we can learn from. And then, hey, older generation, can you please try to help mentor the little ones? There's a disconnect with that too right now, Scott. So it's like we're not looking at each other that life's hard. And we need to walk together. And it takes a village to help us all evolve as good humans. Instead, we're looking at each other. We're, we're pointing our fingers at each other. We're blaming each other. We're holding the weaknesses and the faults against each other. We're hiding behind these screens on computers. We're, we're forgetting that everyone around us as people have emotions and we're objectifying them. And when we do that, that's increasing the mental. It's like we're attacking each other. It's something that, um, Scott, I don't even know if we've created what needs to be created yet. I think psychedelics are allowing us to see that a little bit. But I think we've got a far, far ways to go um, because, you know, I think the second leading cause of suicide right now for kids uh, between 10 to 14 is, or 10 to 14, second leading cause of suicide, right? We've got seven and eight-year-olds that are hanging <sighs> themselves. 
Um, you know, and then if you go and you look at like kids, I think like 18 to 24, their second leading cause of death is suicide right now. They're not mentally ill. We've got to get that in our head. They're not mentally ill when they kill themselves. They don't know what to do. It's almost like they've ran out of options in life and we've got to help them evolve to the next stage of life and say, you know what? Life's hard right now. You're transitioning and it's going to be okay. Katie, if ketamine can help folks out though, in this situation, what are the risks? How can I, as a concerned parent who might be considering this, mitigate them? Sure. So the three common, right? That's the nice thing about ketamine. There's not too many side effects with ketamine. Um, you got nausea, headache, and then an increase in your blood pressure 10% from the baseline, all of which we preventatively look at and try to prevent. The biggest thing with ketamine that I've noticed um, it's not typically listed as side effects, but say, Scott, if there was something that I was dealing with 10 years ago, say if I had OCD 10 years ago, but I stopped it, or if I used to drink 10 years ago and I stopped. One thing I've noticed is that some of those behaviors, and it would happen with adolescents too, some of those behaviors from earlier times that I just suppressed mm -hmm. may come up to the surface. And the parents will be like, you know, they they were act, this is the way they used to act like eight years ago, not today. And I'm like, that's okay. Like they suppress that and it's actually coming to the surface again and we can actually learn to integrate it. Because if you don't integrate these things, they don't go away. If you integrate them, they neutralize. So the biggest thing I think for parents with their children is to make sure that they have support systems. To, so you, they're trying to figure out what their, their, what their computer system's doing. Right. And, and the people who come in who just do ketamine infusions who aren't working towards trying to uh, look at the upgrades to their system, those are the ones that are going to fall into the traditional system of, hey, I'm just, I just go in once a month, I get ketamine, it makes me feel better for a couple of days, and then I go in once a month, right? What are they doing? They're utilizing the system the same way as the medications right now. Mm -hmm. Take one pill a day, you'll feel better. Mm -hmm. um, the people who come in to take ketamine, who actually work with a therapy, who journal, who look at the breath works, and who do all these different pieces— they're not only working with the medicine, they're actually working with their brain as well. So they're helping to produce these more positive pathways. They're actually decreasing the hypervigilance of their sympathetic nervous system. So some kids, you know, they'll slam their head up against the wall and parents are like, I don't know what's wrong with them. And I'll talk to the kids who slam their head against the wall and, and we'll talk about it. But like he was like, I was numb, you know, so if we can get those words out of them, right. you know, from ketamine and help them to start leading and guiding themselves. I think that's the biggest thing, Scott, is. These kids need to have support um, around them in a very non-judgmental way. And now parents who take their kids to get ketamine, I commend you because there's a lot of parents that are scared to death. Yeah. And unfortunately, if they don't take their kids to get ketamine, sometimes those kids die, right? So, and then that hindsight's 2020 where you have, you know, whatever um, yeah. questions on your decisions. But yeah, I would say, you know, it's, it, Ketamine is one of the safest drugs out there. It's, it's, it's on the World Health Organization's list of essential medications to where every country in the world has access wow. to ketamine. So we utilize it, you know, with anesthesia and such. It's such a short-acting situation. It's not like you're putting your kids on a drug that's going to start affecting them in six weeks. You've got to watch them every day. And, Scott, if you look at antidepressants, every antidepressant out there, for the most part, I won't say every, um, very high percentage of, they all have something called a black box warning. And the black box warning is a warning that you have to, under the FDA, you have to tell the consumer about. And these antidepressants actually increase your risk of suicide. I'm thinking of commercials we see on TV where they're solving some minor problem and, the, you know, the risk is everything from stroke to death to rashes to <laughs> limbs falling off. When we change the narrative, especially with ketamine, especially with all these other drugs, we, in our mindset, Scott, we don't need to say, what are the benefits? Instead, we need to say, what are the risks? Mm. Because if you look at the risks of ketamine over the risks of every other oral medication that we're consuming right now for mental health, the risk of ketamine is, who knows, maybe 95% chance less um, as compared to all the risks for all the other substances out there. So with anesthesia, you always look at risks. Then you look at the benefits. And right now, society's taught us you look at the benefits of the drugs, then you look at the risk. No, you don't. So ketamine has like three primary risks. 
all the other medications out there when they list those commercials. They go so fast. I can't count all yeah. one time. I'm pretty sure it's about 68 risks. Yeah, it's always terrifying <laughs> yes. because they're reading through it so fast. And it's also sinister because it makes you think that they're trying to hide what all of these dangers are by yammering away. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Katie, I think that if there is one final takeaway that I have in closing out, it is exactly what you just said, that when we think about ketamine as a potential treatment for traumas associated with adolescence, focusing on risks versus benefits, as a, in the first instance, is a smart and radically different approach, but one that may help save our kids' lives. Katie, where can mm -hmm. people find out more about you? So I'm around, you can go on the website and type in Katie Walker, typically. There's some video about me somewhere, <laughs> I think, starting there. Revitalistclinic.com um, is, you know, one of our clinic websites. And then revitalist.com um, is another. Um, but yeah, we're uh, working to try to, you know, have a nationwide presence to where we can increase the access to these kids. And I think, Scott, another thing to keep in mind when thinking about ketamine and thinking about our adolescents' constantly evolving brains, yes. it's an intervention that we're doing to get mm. their brain to another level and another intervention to get their brain to another level. These medications that we're putting them on, these are lifelong medications. They're not telling your child to evolve. They're telling your child to stay in the box that they are in. It's not a fair chance at life for these kids um, that are being put on all these medications. So if there's an intervention that we can do, it takes them to a different level to where they can increase their emotional intelligence. Why not? You know, so I'm personal opinion, ketamine, adolescence should be the first line of treatment when our children start struggling with anxiety, depression, and suicidal thoughts. It needs to be the first line. And um, and I really think that we'll say we would save a lot of lives that way. As a final takeaway, that's a bold statement. But like we said at the beginning, these conversations have to be had. Katie, thank you so much for being on the show today. For those you, of you Scott. who are listening or watching, keep tuning in because in upcoming episodes, the conversations are going to be every bit as compelling as this one and challenge some of the fundamental thinking that you have on a whole host of topics. Some of these episodes are about topics like how psychedelics can help with burnout, how integration and why integration works and is so important. And as a companion piece, perhaps, to this episode, how us jaded old adults can use psychedelics to bring out our own inner kid. If you've enjoyed today's episode, be sure to tell everyone that you know about what we're doing and then leave us a five-star review on your favorite audio channel or some comments on YouTube and be sure to subscribe wherever it is that you listen to or take in your podcast. Also, don't forget to follow us on our various social media channels, TikTok, Instagram, LinkedIn, Facebook, as well as YouTube. And then make sure that you go to our website, webdelics.com. That's W-E-B-D-E-L-I-C-S dot com. And sign up to our blog for the most trusted, reliable, and objective information about psychedelics and plant medicine on the entire web. And then after that's done, be sure to come back again for another episode of the Web Delics Podcast.